0: Today we're going to be in Matthew chapter 1, and as you're turning to that, we finished up Jude the last time, and today we're going to start the Gospel of Matthew, which I'm really excited about and really looking forward to teaching. It's really hard uh, not to study this or to study this and not have your life changed in some way. I remember so excited as a new pastor, you know, um, stumbling through the Gospel of Luke, uh, but it was just a blessing to the body because God's Word is powerful. So today we're going to be in uh, the Gospel of Matthew. And I just want to encourage you, I think there's a lot of encouraging, especially today's uh, sermon, Uh, if you're just maybe a little down or down in the dumps or having trouble emotionally, I really pray that, and I think this is really going to pick you up today. So a little bit of an overview, which I always do before we go into a new book, is who wrote uh, Matthew? Well, we know that Matthew wrote the book. He was one of the 12 disciples. Matthew means gift of the Lord. Uh, He was surnamed Levi, which probably means he was from that tribe. Uh, and he was the son of Alphaeus. Matthew was a tax collector in Capernaum for the Roman government, Now, which means he made a lot of money. So if you think the IRS is bad here, <laughs> okay, not only did they take what they could take, but they usually took a little extra. So they were known as cheats and thieves. Uh, it was a very lucrative position. But uh, understand this, that Matthew was also understood by his own people as a traitor. He was a Jew. And the Jews were under the oppression of the Romans at the times, and they hated them, you know what I'm saying? So uh, some Jews said, hey, I'm going with the flow. They left, and they kind of forsook their national heritage, and they they threw their lot in with the pagan uh, government of the Romans. So he was able to do well, lucrative, uh, but his own people really had a problem. There was a disdain for this type of person. And what I find fascinating is, and we're going to cover this, the price of obedience. His obedience cost him something. Right? And when we're obedient, it sometimes costs us something. We'll get into that. But what we, don't, what we have to see, too, is that uh, Jesus in the Twelve had Simon the Zealot. And if he was truly a zealot, check this out. You've got a Jewish insurrectionist wanting to overthrow the Romans by force, probably thinking that Jesus, claiming to be the Messiah, was going to do that. And then you have Matthew, who's brought in, is a traitor to his own people. Could you imagine putting those two in a room? So Jesus was some type of leader, I'll tell you. you. know, I like to just kind of go into the Bible and, and see what was going in on back then and look at the culture, and he just brings out so much. But even in his gospel, uh, Matthew, uh, he, it was not a self-aggrandizing work. It was all focused on the Lord. Now, that's important. He rarely mentions himself, maybe at least once uh, out of the whole book in chapter 9. Uh, but, you know, there's a lot of works today. Uh, people will, from the pulpit, talk about the Lord. Uh, maybe were some worship songs. And what happens is too much focus today on personalities instead of the person of the Lord. So Matthew wasn't self-aggrandizing. It was all about the Lord. Uh, when, w- when was it written? There are some good arguments for anywhere from AD 50s to AD 80s. I'm not going to go into all the arguments. But why was it written? Well, it was written for everyone. We know that somebody could come to Christ through reading any of the Gospels. However, I believe that the focus was more on the unbelieving Jews at the time, the religious Jews who were struggling with the whole Messiah thing, is he or isn't he? Over a hundred Old Testament quotes and allusions to the Old Testament to help them make that transition to Yeshua HaMashiach, you know, Jesus the Messiah. Uh, and many have rightly discerned that Matthew's gospel is a bridge Between the Old and the New Testament. Now, often three impediments for a Jewish person to come to faith in the Messiah. And I just want to bring all this stuff before we jump into this because it's good to have this background, right? Notwithstanding the spiritual issue, of course. Number one, um, there was some trouble with or uh, difficulty in understanding that God had a son and the triune nature of God. Two, The Messiah was crucified on a tree instead of a triumphant physical victory over the Romans, vanquishing the Roman Empire. Now, those two are easily addressed in scriptures. If you look at even the old Talmudic writings, the rabbinical writings of prior to the first century, they spoke about the lion and the lamb, the dual nature of the Messiah, and even they weren't sure how it was going to play out. I will will suggest this. There's a book called The Search for Messiah, written by a Jewish doctor. Now, I've given this book to rabbis, um, nominal Jews, Orthodox Jews, and you know, at the very least, they've read it and said, wow, this is fascinating. He brings all the rabbinical writings who spoke about really purporting at Jesus as the Messiah based on their understanding of the Old Testament. So this is a very good book. Uh, you can see me afterwards if you're interested. It kind of speaks for itself and does its own evangelization work. The last point, the last impediment... Uh, that you might run into, which some of us have, is the fact that the church or those in the church, there's been periods of time of anti-Semitism. Now, it, it kind of is rooted in what's called replacement theology, where now the church is the new Israel. God is done with Israel, and the church is the, sort of like 50 is the new 40. You know, it's, they kind of change things. But the point is that uh, it started out really when the Gentiles started to crowd into the church because really the, the church started as a Jewish sect. But then the, you know, the, Jesus was, was died for all man's sin. So people started to come in. The Gentiles actually started to outnumber the Jews. And then this replacement theology started coming up because it benefited their, uh, their standpoint. It came in during the Reformation, and it's coming through today. We see a lot of uh, talk, even in the pulpits of America and in Europe, that really want nothing to do with the Jewish people. And that's frightening. Because God isn't finished with his people. There's many promises that still need to be fulfilled. So understand, and I would just say that, listen, anybody who persecutes Jews, I don't know where they're getting their information from because it certainly isn't in the scripture. And the uniqueness. We know about the synoptic gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke. And John kind of is different in a uniqueness. But I will submit to you, That Matthew is also unique. Because there's parables in this gospel that aren't in the other ones. There's a lot of uniqueness in this, and we'll see that. So let's jump in. Matthew chapter 1, starting with verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham begot Isaac. Isaac begot Jacob. And Jacob begot Judah and his brothers. Judah begot Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez begot Hezron. And Hezron begot Ram. Ram begot Aminadab. Aminadab begot Nashon. And Nashon begot Salmon. Salmon begot Boaz by Rahab. Boaz begot Obed by Ruth. Obed begot Jesse. And Jesse begot David the king. There's one section there, right? Let's move on. David the king begot Solomon by her, who had been the wife of Uriah. Solomon begot Rehoboam. Rehoboam begot Abijah. And Abijah begot Asa. Asa begot Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat begot Joram, and Joram begot Uzziah. Uzziah begot Jotham, and Jotham begot Ahaz, and Ahaz begot Hezekiah. Hezekiah begot Manasseh, Manasseh begot Amon, and Amon begot Josiah. Josiah begot Jeconiah and his brothers about the time they were carried away to Babylon. Another section, third part. And after they were brought to Babylon, Jeconiah begot Shealtiel. And Shealtiel begot Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel begot Abiud, Abiud begot Eliakim, and Eliakim begot Azor, Azor begot Zadok, Zadok begot Akim, and Akim begot Eliud, Eliud begot Eleazar, Eleazar begot Matthan, Matthan begot Jacob, and Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called. Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. From David until the captivity uh, in Babylon are 14 generations. And from the captivity in Babylon until the Christ are 14 generations. So what we're going to do now for the next few hours is go through every name, what they mean, what they did. No, just kidding. <laughs> you guys are sharp. <laughs> figured I'd slip that in there. Genealogies. There's a reason for this. Okay. This was, for us, it's like, you know, Kind of neat names. I like them. Um, I was going to name my, my son Jehoshaphat, but my wife would have none of that. <laughs> but there's a reason for this, and we'll get into that. Uh, understand this that Luke's first chapter covers Gabriel's already visiting Mary. And what we're going to cover in Matthew, when you take these all together, it's really a cool timeline. Somebody actually did a book where you put all the Gospels together chronologically, and it kind of blows you away at how they were so accurate in their, you know, each each event that took place. Uh, But we're going to talk about three sets of 14 generations uh, time periods of the Jewish people. So the first one is Abraham to King David. This is the birth of the Jewish nation. The birth of the Jewish nation to the beginning of the monarchy. So this is the growth stage, the birth and the growth. The second stage is King David to King Josiah, who was the last king. Uh, the king of Judah, and my wife allowed me to name my son Josiah. She accepted that one. But this guy's a great guy. And this is really the life of Israel lived out in the monarchy or the kingdom, just before the invasion and the destruction of the religious system and the temple in Jerusalem by the Babylonians. The third part of this is the rest of the generations of Israel where they're either captive or they have a complete loss of sovereignty as a nation until the Christ. And again, this is, this is the sticking point. You know, The Jews were waiting for this Messiah to come and just wipe out the Romans. So they were preferring the lion first and then the lamb. It's that desire-based theology that I spoke about. But the lamb came first and then the lion will come and there was a reason for that. Jesus had to, had to get a hold of their hearts. He had to revive them from a spiritual standpoint before he comes back in glory and now does it from a physical standpoint. Uh, four phases of, uh, here that we can see is, number one, again, the growth stage, the success stage and humiliation, and then the Christ. Now, we can see this these parallels in any of God's people. As a matter of fact, we can see this in the church. The church, I mean, we could take us for an example. You know, when we were in the school, it was hard work. The ushers were doing so much in the children's ministry, packing up and unpacking, just a lot of work, but hungry because we we just wanted the Lord and we were so excited for him, and we just wanted people to hear the message of salvation. And then you could say the success stage. A lot of churches start from something small, and then they get a building, kind of like we did, right? And then here's the the problem. Hopefully it doesn't change from there. and Let's not let that happen here because the humiliation stage sets in when pride sets in. We know that the, the Bible says that pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall, and then the humiliation stage. God has to deal with us. And then the Christ. Jesus is always there to come back to. He's always waiting for us, you know. When we walk ahead of him, he's always waiting for us to look back and say, oh, I left you behind, Lord. Let me let me catch up to you instead of you catching up to me. And again, we can see this on a personal level. When we are new in Christ, when we receive Jesus, when we come up to the front, we want everybody to know. We tell our friends we, we don't stop talking about Jesus. You know, I remember me. It was just so exciting. I'd call my friends at 12 o'clock at night saying, I don't understand this parable. And they'd say, go to sleep. I'll talk to you tomorrow, you know. <laughs> And then the success stage, we we learn to talk Christianese. If somebody says, hello, brother, I know how to respond in Christianese lingo, you start to know where things are in the scripture, but let's be careful because sometimes that pride stage sets in and then we're ripe for humiliation. I tell you what, I've been a pastor for only six years, but I've seen so many fall away and it's really, it really has broken my heart. Maybe they've gotten into a grievous sin or living a double life or whatever the case may be, and then there's that humiliation. But you know what? Jesus is always there to pick us back up again. All we have to do is ask. All we have to do is repent, change direction, and he's ready to lift us up out of that slump again, and that's the beautiful thing. But today's sermon, again, is the price of obedience, but understand there's also a price of disobedience, and there's also great benefits of obedience, and we'll see that. Now, verse 16, uh, Joseph is shown as the legal father of Jesus. Now, again, you have to understand a little bit about first century culture to get what's going on here. So why is Matthew talking about the genealogy of Joseph when Joseph was, was really no part of Mary having Jesus? Because Mary and Joseph were betrothed. Now, to us, there's benefits of, of marriage in the betrothal, but there's no intimacy and there's no living together. So it was kind of a stage right before our marriage. Understand that in betrothal, it was also a legal covenant. So uh, Joseph was now, even though they were betrothed, Mary was, was with child of Jesus Christ. He is the adopted father legally. So uh, Matthew has to cover that genealogy of Joseph in a legal fashion. Now understand this. We know the story that she's uh, pregnant and, and there's some question about where the baby come from. Uh, There was, legally, Joseph could have had her divorced, understand? Because betrothal was part of that legal contract. So Luke hits the genealogy from Mary's bloodline, and Matthew hits the bloodline from Joseph's uh, uh, bloodline. And one other point that I wanted to make here was that, uh, very interesting too, if you know your Bible really well, there was a curse. I read Jeconiah. Do you remember that, the King Jeconiah? Well, through uh, Jeremiah's prophecy, Jeconiah's bloodline was cursed because of his wickedness and no son of Jeconiah would sit on the throne. So the cool thing is Mary had a bloodline through David, but instead of through Solomon, it went through Nathan, one of his other sons, thereby eliminating, bypassing the curse of Jeconiah so any uh, progeny of Mary could sit on the throne. There's things in here that'll just blow you away. See, I love talking to Jewish believers because they have a flavor that's totally different from us. And they can really dig into those scriptures and show where Jesus is in the Old Testament. And that's why I kind of talked about that book. So let's, let's get into this. Uh, what I'd like to do, too, is look at some of these men and women. I'll only pick out a few today, not all of them. Look at their circumstances and talk a little bit about them. Let's start with Abraham. Uh, if you turn with me to Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. He says to Abraham in verse 3, I'm sorry, in verse 1, says, Now the Lord said to Abraham, Get out of your country, Ur of the Chaldees, from your kindred and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. Wow. What was the price of obedience for Abraham? We read this and blow right past it. You know, I read chapter 12 today, you know, and like took me two minutes to do it. But do we really meditate on what happened here? He tells Abraham, get away from your family, get out of your country. He he traveled, uh, I'm trying to remember, was like a thousand miles to a completely different land, to a place that I will show you. What if that was us? What if you were in Abraham's position? What was the price that he paid for obedience? All let's just bring ourselves into the picture. You know, we're settled in our lives, we're making money, we paid off our college loans, uh, we got a promotion, uh, I bought my first house, and then imagine the Lord calling us and saying, just get up, get away from your extended family and come to a place I will show you. I'm going to do a great thing through you. How would we feel about that? There's a price to be paid. Now, in economics, there was a term called opportunity costs. So let's just say that uh, choice A is following the world. And you could get anything in the world. Believe me, as a believer, Satan will give you anything you want as long as it distracts you from the Lord. So choice A is to, to get anything you can in the world. Whatever your heart desires, you can have here in the world. And choice B is to follow the Lord. When you choose choice B and you follow the Lord, you forsake what you could get out of the world in choice A. Those are called opportunity costs in modern day economics. Understand? So the cost of the opportunity that you could have had in A, but now you went to B. And this is what Abraham is dealing with right now. So what if God said that to us? You know, hey, Lord, I just got settled, you know? We, we can be so focused on the American dream that we forget about what the Lord is showing us. We can be so sheltered from what he's trying to show us because we're just so busy in our lives, our lives, and, and it's easy to happen here. But what was the benefit by one man's obedience the nation of israel was birthed that's amazing that's fantastic let me read to you second chronicles 16:9 one verse it says for the eyes of the lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is loyal to him is a scanning effect This is amazing when I think about the Lord and and his just eyes are running to and fro on the face of the earth. Why? Because a lot of people pass him up. Because he's given us free will. We're free moral agents, even as believers. We can follow him or not follow him. And I believe that the Lord is looking. And there's very few that are willing to say, Lord, use me. You know, I don't know what I can do. I don't have a lot of talents. I don't have a lot of confidence in myself. I'm in a slump right now. But Lord, I know you can do great things through me. Is that you? When the eyes of the Lord run through and fro into this area, are you one of those people that say, don't look at me? I remember when I was in school and, and the teacher would ask a hard question. We would all kind of slump down in our seats behind the person in front of us so she wouldn't see us. You know what I'm saying? Is that what we're doing with the Lord? Are we slumping down behind somebody else and say, I'm busy. I'm really liking what I'm doing right now. Please use the person in front of me. So it's a very interesting thing to look at. But... Abraham still had a price of disobedience. He didn't quite follow the uh, command, as none of us do, unfortunately, to a T. See, we like to tweak God's plan. You know, that's a great plan, Lord. But if we just, like, we want to give him some input. If we just kind of do a little bit of this and a little bit of that and sweeten the pot, Lord, this could be a great plan. Me and you together, we're going to conquer the world. But what happened was Abraham took Lot, and he paid the price for it. Abraham had uh, children, or he had a son, Ishmael, before waiting for the Lord, and it cost him. It even, it even cost the nation of Israel today. So there is also a price of disobedience. Second person I want to look at is Rahab. Now, we understand in the Bible Rahab as a Gentile prostitute in Jericho, when the Jews were coming to tear down the walls of Jericho, basically the marching around it and the whole thing. Um, it's Jericho, right? Do I have that right? Thank you, Dave. <laughs> she was, number one, uncommon to find uh, women in genealogies. Oh, and actually, as we see these ladies here, again, it was uncommon. But remember, the Lord evened the playing field. All right? It was a very male-dominated society. So you got four women here in the genealogies, which is impressive to begin with. So Rahab, uncommon to find women in genealogies. Two, she was a pagan. And three, she was a prostitute. From the world's perspective, three strikes and you're out. But that just goes to show the glory of God. God loves to find people that, um, that the world would not look at and just reach in there and do glorious things through them. You know? and, and you know we, gotta, we have to be humble and we have to uh, not take ourselves too seriously. But sometimes I, I joke with my wife and say, gee, when he picked me, he must have held his nose and rolled up his sleeve and said, oh, I'm going to use this guy and just reached down into the whatever and said, I can brush this guy off and use him. But God is good. He's good. He can use any of us. Understand that. So, so Rahab, talk about redemption. Talk about leveling the playing field. And I would say this. How dare any of us look down our nose at someone else? One of my biggest peeves are sanctimonious, self-righteous, snotty Christians. They don't do well in this church because I won't have it. I don't like it. It really, it's one of the things that my my emotions come out when I think about it. How dare we look down our nose at anybody else? God can use anyone. And if we we put ourselves that high and we think that, you know, it's a good thing he chose us because we have so much to offer, we're missing the point. We're missing the point. But what was Rahab's price of obedience? Number one, she immediately became a traitor. When the soldiers came looking for the spies and she had to hide them, she was in a difficult position. What if she was found out? There would have been suspicion, maybe a little paranoia. And ultimately, she had a separation from her national identity when the Jews came and were victorious. She could have maybe prevented that in a sense to some degree, but she chose to go with the God of Israel. Now, what was the blessing? Well, her life was spared by the invading Israelite army. The life of her family was uh, spared. And she had honorable mention in the line of the Messiah. Again, let's not forget that these are real people that we're looking at here. The third person, Ruth. I had a great time doing the book of Ruth, studying the book of Ruth on Wednesday nights. A lot of things happened to Ruth. Very difficult. She she lost her husband. Her her husband died. Her father-in-law died. Her brother-in-law died. And she had to go back to work to survive. And her mother-in-law, in the beginning, was really a downer. I mean, she just was a very... She says it of herself, uh, Naomi, but she chose to follow her. What was her price of obedience? It cost her something. She's now going into to an unfamiliar land. She's leaving again, all sort of like Abraham, leaving her kindred, leaving her people, going into an unfamiliar land uh, with unfamiliar God, but she chose to follow God. And she didn't know if, number one, she was going to get any help or if she would be accepted, how would we feel in her situation? That is a lot. I will tell you this. I tell my wife, the house that we're living in now, we're going to die in unless the, Lord, <laughs> unless the Lord tells us to do something. I hate moving. Mo- moving to me is so... You give me any, any task, I don't like to move. So if the Lord was to say, Joe, sell your house and head here, and then from there head here, I'd be like, oh, yeah, yeah, but God is good, you know. Uh, there are prices that we pay for obedience. What was the blessing? She was accepted in Israel. She was accepted by God. What well, with some other blessings? It didn't take long for people around to see that she had a good reputation. She, just was, she wasn't trying to, but she was a hard worker. She was taking care of her mother-in-law. Everybody knew the story. So she immediately developed a good reputation in that land. And understand this. We talk about racism today. Back then, there was racism. Racism is a hideous thing. And what would happen is if you went from one culture to another, a lot of times you wouldn't be accepted. You You could be separated by geography and still have somewhat of a similar bloodline and they wouldn't accept you because you're not from there. So understand that that existed back then, probably to a greater extent than it exists today, especially in the United States. She eventually married a godly man who took care of her, loved her, and took care of her mother-in-law. So it really was a storybook happy ending. The fourth person, King David. The Bible says he was a man after God's own heart. Now, when he was good, he was really good. When he was disobedient, he was is equally destructive, if you know the story about David. But the price of obedience, when he was just looking to serve the Lord, when he was uh, just growing in the Lord and, and uh, you know, he just had such great faith in the Lord. My God could do anything. Goliath, ah, lion, bear, no problem. My God can do anything, even over the objections of many around him. But as Dave, David rose in that growth process to serving the Lord, he made more enemies than friends. He had traitors in his own camp. There was treachery in his kingdom. So, and he was also considered a man of bloodshed. Because he fought the Lord's battles. And he wanted to build a temple for God. And God said, you're a man of bloodshed. I'm going to give it to your son. Eeks. But that was the price of obedience. His desires, what he wanted to do, it was just about really him serving the Lord. But what what were the benefits? What were the blessings of David? Number one, he had a personal relationship with the Lord. When we think of personal relationship, even for those that just teach the New Testament, we think of the Psalms of David. We love to think of the Psalms and his love for the Lord and meditating. I could just picture him walking in a field by himself and just praising the Lord and then just writing that stuff down into the Psalms. We make songs about it. So when we think about relationship with the Lord and, you know, we get so bogged down in church structure and hierarchy and you've got to go through this and that, no. We go back to the Psalms and say, as David as an individual had that relationship, so can we. So those were the benefits of David. He also had the honor of having the Messiah come through his line. But what was the price of David's disobedience? Adultery, murder, treason in his own household, by his own children, death in the family of his own children because of uh, his disobedience, sorrow and heartache. And those are just things that David brought on himself. And again, we can make parallels in our own lives. When we have that heartache and sorrow, that we bring upon ourselves. We just want to repent and say, Lord, I need to start all over again. This isn't good. Now, I want to add one more person because I think it's, it's really a great um, paradox here. But Moses, he's not in here. He's from a different tribe. Check out Moses. Now, let's bring this to, to modern day 2010 in New Jersey. right? Moses had the best education in the most powerful country in the world and his adoptive grandfather was the king. Now, you don't get better than that in the world. He could have had it all. He could have had anything that the world would offer him. Remember, because of the family he was in, the education that he received. But what happened? His price of obedience. Well, he did start out as a fugitive through his own doing, but he becomes a shepherd for 40 years. Imagine that, great education. And a shepherd back then was a lowly position. He, he had all the schooling of the Egyptians, all the modern technology, and he's out there with, nah, nah, nah. What am I doing here for 40 years? That was his price of obedience. Then he comes back to Egypt, and instead of a friend, he's now a foe. He's blowing stuff up. There's frogs and gnats and firstborn dying. And, you know, in today's society, probably the Egyptians, at least the leadership, thought of him as a terrorist. So this is what Moses has to deal with. He could have had all of this. But with the price of obedience in the world, he was over here, such to the point that not only did the... You know, his own brother, he had to take on board because he felt he couldn't do it himself. But he has to lead a few million complaining exiles into a barren wilderness, a price of obedience, right? But what were the benefits of Moses? I mean, we look back at Moses. He brought the law. He had a personal relationship with the Lord. God used him to do great things. Now, we're going to jump in, understand as we continue forward in the scripture, we're going to look at, Uh, Mary and Joseph, and understand this, when you look at this genealogy, this is important for a few reasons. Number one, Isaiah 7.14 said, the virgin will be with child. Several hundred years before Mary was actually conceived. So every Jewish person who knew their scripture knew this. Isaiah 7.14, the virgin, this miracle, would be with child. Uh, Genesis 22, the Messiah would have to come from the seed of Abraham. Genesis 49, he would have to come from the tribe of Judah. Uh, 2 Samuel 7, from the family of David. You can fake a lot of things in life and really make people believe you, especially in the United States, but try to fake your birth. Try to fake who you're going to come through, who's going to be your parents, what time period you're going to be born in. It's impossible to do unless you're pre-existent. Understand that. Now, check this out, too, that if any person, and and we know, and I've covered these in the different sects that were back then, um, how they... um, you know, claim to be the Messiah and how they were refuted and how nobody follows them anymore because as soon as, as quickly as they came on the scene when they were persecuted by the authorities, they just dispersed. But of course, not Christianity. Understand this, that anybody claiming to be the Messiah would have to go back to the records of their genealogy and have to prove that they came from that table according to the scripture because the religious community didn't want to lose power. And they certainly were going to hold you accountable and make sure you came from that that table. So that's why this is in here. Understand this too. 70 AD, the Romans, at a fever pitch, tension with the Jews and the religious community, they destroy Jerusalem again. They destroy the temple. They burn it to the ground. They actually, there's reports of the Romans, it, it was so hot. It was such an inferno in that temple as everything was starting to burn that the gold started to melt. And uh, eventually they they, uh, found that they would break the stones up. Jesus said, not one stone will be left upon another. There was reports of them breaking the stones because the gold melted into the stones. And they were trying to get as much loot as they could while that thing burned to the ground. Now understand that temple held genealogical tables. So if you wanted to look at your family tree, you would go to the local, well, probably the the temple. I don't know if the synagogues had them. Uh, I don't think so. And then you can really trace your your family tree back. So after 70 AD, nobody could prove that they were the Messiah anymore. And furthermore, I love to read critical um, uh, essays or whatever on Christianity, you know, from whatever, whatever group is is claiming that it wasn't true. Not one, and if you see one, please let me know because I like to read it. I've never seen one critical essay of Christianity in the first century or later that said that Jesus didn't come from that line. Because you rest assured that if somebody had any doubt that Jesus didn't come from that line, they would have made a big scandal about it. But there was silence in that time period. So now that you know the culture, you really get more of a flavor of why this stuff is true. And I just love to bring the culture and history and just bring it all together into that perfect storm so you could see the glory of God and what he's done through his Messiah. So let's go back to Matthew starting with uh, continuing with verse 18 it says now the birth of jesus christ was as follows after his mother mary was betrothed to joseph before they came together she was found with child of the holy spirit then joseph her husband being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example was minded to put her away secretly now again we we spoke about joseph how he could have pushed for divorce We spoke about Joseph, how he even could have pushed for stoning. Now, the Romans had really the ultimate right to say who received capital punishment or not, but even the Scripture, we know that emotions ran so high that sometimes it was done without the consent of the authorities. So this is what's going on here. Imagine how the two of them must have felt. Imagine the conversation. Mary, you know, what's going on? Joseph, I love you, you know. Isaiah 7, 14, that's me. Mary, do you really expect me to believe that? You know what I'm saying? I mean, I don't know. I'm, I know I'm really guilty of a, I said Jesus here reading into the text, but just imagine... What the, uh, the situation and the conversations were about. And it says that Joseph left and he had to think about these things. But he was a good man. He, he didn't want to make a public example of her. He felt that she you know, cheated on him and broke the covenant, but he still was such a good man that he didn't want to use his emotions to get back at her. So you can see the characters of these people in the Bible. But just imagine Joseph leaving and, and just, oh, just having to think about it. And Mary standing there saying, But Lord, you know, I get what the, what the angel told me. I'm being obedient to you. Why is this happening to me? Nobody ever said, listen, if anyone says to you, following the Lord is easy, all your problems go away. You'll be walking on air all the time. That is a lie, okay? That is not true. That's why I don't like these guys who only preach a syrupy message because they're lying. They're only giving you half the story, but it will build your character. It will bring you closer to the Lord, and there is no greater honor than serving the Lord. But I could picture Mary as a young girl. In those days, she probably would have been a teenager. Women married young back then. Probably saying, you know, young, scared, pregnant. Now, the only person that could have supported her is is upset with her. She's like, Lord, I don't understand. But I will tell you that when you serve the Lord, there will be moments like that. And God will test you. And he will deepen you. And he will strengthen your character. But don't give up. You may be in a situation today with your marriage or a relationship or a hard decision or with your kids and saying, Lord, I just did what your word said I should do. I just really want to be that right person, and I feel like my life is is falling apart. You'll be in those situations, but take heart. Now, according to what happened here, it does appear that, you know, I don't know if it was that night or whatever, but the angel appears to him and, and makes Joseph understand what's going on. But for us, it may take longer. For us, it may take a few weeks, a few months, a few years. Only God knows in your particular situation. I know this is kind of like a backhanded compliment, but the more you have to go through the fire, probably thinks that God thinks you can handle it. You know what I'm saying? Don't love me so much, Lord, you know? So that's what we have here. Uh, Dr. Dobson wrote a book, When God Doesn't Make Sense. I would have changed the title to When God Doesn't Seem to Make Sense because God always makes sense. It's just for us to come in harmony and fall in line with his perfect will and whether we're going to be a part of that or not. Verse 20. Are you loving this book already? This is good stuff. Verse 20. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph... Son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, and here's where he quotes Isaiah 7.14, Behold, a virgin shall be with child and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took to him his wife, and did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son Jesus, and he called his name Jesus. Now understand this, and this is what's really sad in history. This is what's sad when people's emotions and their desires and their their reading of the text based on their political bent or their theological desire starts to get into their theology. It becomes a mess. Older portions of the scripture, the, the Masoretic text of, of the Hebrew, and which is, I think, a, roughly a 900 AD translation, uh, have sanitized that word virgin to mean a handmaid. Now, if you go back to the older translations, Septuagint, 3rd century BC, the Jews are under captivity of the Greeks, and their desire is for the, the, the polytheist Greeks to understand the monotheistic God. So 70 Septuagint, uh, 70 scholars, Jewish scholars get together and translate the entire Old Testament from Hebrew into Greek. And they use the word, I think it was Parthenos uh, for virgin. And virgin meant virgin back then. Now this was an approved Jewish scholarly translation of Hebrew to Greek today. It's sanitized. It means handmaiden. Why? Because those that don't want to believe that Jesus was the Messiah have to start getting their erasers out and changing things so it meets their desires. Pretty sad, isn't it? This is why I think that we should all learn a little bit of apologetics. Understand why we believe what we believe. Right? It's very important. So the, uh, God sends an angel to Joseph to assure him what will take place. God's sovereign will will be fulfilled. Mary and Joseph will be together. Um, she's obviously showing at some point. Now, what do they say? Okay, so Mary and Joseph are together. All their problems are solved, right? Mary, Joseph, God, we're good. We don't need anybody else. Understand how tight the communities were back then. She's starting to show. People do the mathematical figures. You know, well, they were married here, and they were betrothed here, and she's got a belly. What's going on here? People do that today. They gossip. (laughs) Are you surprised? (laughs) So what happens is, the religious community now, there's a local synagogue, there's a religious community, and uh, their problems are just beginning. Just imagine this young couple trying to serve the Lord, trying to explain to people, Isaiah 7:14 that explains it all. Yeah, right. So this is what they're up against. Do you realize what this is going to mean to them? Now, again, when trusting the Lord, sometimes you can do everything right and still get persecution from others. And, and it's kind of trite to say it's a spiritual battle, but it is, because the world is owned by Satan. And if people are not in harmony with the Lord's will, and you're, you're going to you know, raise the standard and, and fight the Lord's battles, guess what? You're going to get some of it too. It's going to be dished out. Verse 25 is interesting. It says that this is important. Uh, Mary and Joseph come together. It says he did not know her till she had brought her firstborn son. Doesn't mean he was like, "Who is this?" You know, <laughs> he knew her, but he didn't know her. So the point is that they didn't come together with intimacy and have children until Jesus was born. There is a, a myth that Mary was a perpetual virgin. And that actually started to develop, if you look at the history, centuries later. It wasn't the first century, didn't believe it. It came on the scene later on in so-called Christianity. Uh, But supposedly, Mary, who was always a virgin, made her more special than a woman who had 10 kids. No, right in Genesis, God said, be fruitful and multiply. So there's nothing wrong with having children, Uh, many children, a little bit of children, versus being a virgin. There's no one over the other. It's just a myth to to elevate her to a position that she never, even in the the Bible, wanted to be. And we'll see that. So the price of obedience. There will always be a price of obedience when we follow the Lord. You may miss a promotion. You may lose friends. Your plans may be changed. You may be pulled away from your comfort zones. That's a big one. I'll write a check. But don't take me out of my comfort zones, right? I, I really am. I'm in a groove right now. You're probably some of you are saying, "You're not making this sound real enticing." Jesus said, "Count the costs," because there are costs. That's obvious. There's also a price of disobedience. If you are a believer, if you are a born-again believer, and you know the Lord is calling you to something, to serve Him in some way, and you keep ducking and you keep, you know, bobbing and weaving and, and trying to get away from His gaze your spirit won't have rest. You may make plenty of money. You may get all the promotions. You may be successful. You may have that second house and that third car and all that such, a boat in the water, you name it. But your spirit will not rest until you give in to what you were designed for. Like it or not, believe it or not, we were designed to glorify God. And God has a plan for everyone here today. I don't care how old you are. Why do you think that book, The Purpose Driven Life, made so much money? That guy became an overnight millionaire. Why? Because people are walking around this planet looking for purpose. And believers are no different. There's believers that are walking around and they're 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 not living in joy, they're not living in freedom, they're not living in victory because either they refuse or they don't want to know what the Lord has for them. You mean I gotta get over that hump to get to that place where I find peace? Trust the Lord. Trust the Lord. If you are truly a born-again believer and you run from him, you will not find peace until you give in and see what your purpose is that he has designed for you. The benefits. If you're going into ministry specifically to look for rewards, it doesn't work like that. You'll be disappointed. But every once in a while, like I read that letter to you, six years later, a girl from college and, and I'm reading this, I'm like, wow, she never said much when she was here, you know? But how exciting. You'll, get, you'll see God's his, his plan start to manifest in your life, and he will confirm that that's where you need to be. So I would say this. Trust the Lord. I would say this. Pray today. I, again, I don't, care what, I don't care if you're divorced. I don't care if you're young. I don't care if you're older. God has a plan for you. Pray today and ask him what it is that he would have you do to glorify and serve him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we oh love your words so much, especially these.